0: We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15 as part of our message today because today is the third of four messages in a short series that we're doing on the topic of heaven. We've entitled it "Heaven, Sweet Home. Two weeks ago when we began the series, we looked at the fact that our future home in heaven should be a present motivation for our service to the Lord in the here and now. Then last week, we looked at what the scriptures tell us about what heaven will be like. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And then today we're going to look at what we will be like. And we'll look at some of what we will be doing next week. In the final message in this series, we're going to look at what it takes to get to heaven. What's required for one to enter into God's presence for all eternity. And then following that, beginning on uh, the uh, 26th, Two weeks from today, our pastors in training will be preaching for the next four weeks. Zach is going to preach two weeks from today, and then on August the 2nd, we'll hear from Brother Matt, on August the 9th, Larry Castle, and then on the 16th, Brother John Veldus. On August the 23rd, we will start a series together in this hour looking at the book of Hebrews and particularly all of the allusions in that New Testament book to the first part of your Bible in the Old Testament, it's my hope that we'll all better become acquainted with the first part of our Bible by virtue of looking at that book together. So that's where we are and where we're going today, 1 Corinthians 15, and our third message of four in the series Heaven, Sweet Home. And I've titled it, as you see on the screen and in your outline, that heaven for us is really more than a harp and a cloud. The truth of the matter is many people envision heaven and they have no idea what to think about it. And most see it simply as you with, me with, some wings and a harp floating on our own cloud. That's what heaven is for most people. Or, if it's not just that, it may be even worse. Their view of heaven is that it is just one long, never-ending church service. And Brown is preaching... And when he says, in conclusion, there really is no conclusion. (laughs) But it really is much more than that. More than a heart, more than a cloud, more than one long, unending church service. It has many of those elements, but the Bible teaches that it has much more than that. And we say in your outline that we, when we get to heaven, are going to be people who are perfectly suited for... Our perfect home. The truth is, it's hard for us to imagine perfection. We live in a fallen world as fallen people. And so for us to think about a perfect home, with perfect people in perfect communion with God, in perfect relationship with one another, it is very difficult. No, it's really impossible for us to fully comprehend what that will be like. But the Bible does indeed teach that we will be perfectly suited for the perfect home that God has prepared for his people. John acknowledged that it is difficult for us to know what it will be like in our perfect home. In 1 John 3, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We can't really imagine what it's going to be like for imperfect people like us now to be perfect people then in that perfect home. Environment, But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Though we can't imagine it now, the Bible does tell us that it is in process, it being the perfecting of God's people in preparation for that perfect place. God is in the process right now, in the here and now, of perfecting you and perfecting me in preparation for that perfect place. Most of you know that when we come to Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Bible teaches that we are declared by God the Holy Judge perfectly righteous before the bar of His justice. Not because we are indeed righteous, but because the one in whom we have placed our faith, Jesus Christ, was absolutely righteous. And what God does in His marvelous mercy is apply the perfect righteousness of Jesus to you and to me at the moment that we come to Jesus Christ as Savior. And so we have standing, we have a position before him that is absolutely perfect. You all know that, right? What a marvelous thing. We'll talk some more about that next week. What does it take to get to heaven? But in the meantime, God is in the process of making those people who have this position, making them what they have doing a work in them so that they are made righteous, not merely declared righteous. And so the Bible teaches that we are justified, declared righteous before God, but He is in the process of sanctifying us, making us like His Son, Jesus Christ. The end game of all of that, that God has planned from the very beginning, to save you and to save me if we have come to Jesus Christ. He planned from before the foundation of the world to do that. And then in time, he arranged the circumstances so that it actually happened. We heard the gospel message. We embraced the Savior of that message. And we were justified positionally before God, the holy judge. But the end of all of that is that we would ultimately be glorified. So most of you are familiar with Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And I've pointed out to you a number of times in the past that all four of those things, predestined and called and justified and glorified, all of them are written in the past tense, but the fourth of those, glorified, hasn't occurred yet. It's in the future. But in the mind of God, it's as good as done. Now, why? There's an unbroken chain, an unbroken chain from the predestination of God to call you and me out of the world and to himself until the end for which he has done that actually transpires. We are glorified before him. And in the meantime, in the here and now, that God is actively sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Jesus. And that's why the verse just before that one says this. He has predestined... Us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And those he predestined he called. So God's at work in our lives right now. Making us like Jesus. Suiting imperfect people. To one day be perfect. For their perfect heavenly home. We are new in our position and we are being made new. The Bible teaches in our experience. And so scripture tells us this, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Now let me just pause long enough to say this. Friend, when you came to Jesus Christ, it was not intended by God ever, ever, to simply be fire insurance. Your salvation is not just, I'm not going to hell. Your salvation is, Thanks be to God, I'm going to heaven. And he is in the process in the here and now of making me and you heavenly. Transforming us from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. The one before whom one day we will stand. And God guarantees we will one day be like if we are his children right now. And that's why the Bible says then if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. If your Christian walk is not the pursuit of that kind of holiness, being like and thinking like and talking like Jesus, then, friend, you have woefully misunderstood God's purpose in calling you out of the world into himself. It's to refashion a new creation, and he is at work doing that right now. But even those of us who are pursuing that, though we waver in our walk, every last one of us, myself included, though we are pursuing that, The truth is, we don't feel like we're new, do we? The Bible declares that we are new creations, that God is doing this work in us that will one day culminate in us being glorified and being suited for our heavenly home. But in the here and now, we don't feel that way. Well, we're in good company, and we know the reason why. Paul wrote this, I want to do good, but evil is right here with me. You see, we have indwelling sin this side of heaven. We have the sin nature, what the Bible calls the flesh with which we contend. And we will contend and we will struggle until the day we die or Jesus returns and takes us to be with him. And then we will be in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, we will be changed in an instant. But until then, we struggle. We struggle with the flesh and we struggle with the sin nature. And the question for you and for me as believers is not, do I sin? We do. The question is, do we struggle with sin? Or are we comfortable with it? Far too many who name the name of Jesus are comfortable in their sin. And that should not be for God's holy people. God has prepared a place for us. And he is preparing us for that place. And we are to be busy about seeing Jesus Christ's reflection in the mirror of his word. And being conformed to it. We will be in this perfect place. For which we will be perfectly suited. Perfect in both soul and body. And I say that for you in your outline. We will be a perfected soul. I'm using soul here for the immaterial parts of the individual. You all know that God created us both physical and spiritual. Both material and Immaterial, body and spirit or body and soul. So when I say soul, I'm using it synonymously with the spirit or the immaterial part of man. And we will have the consummation of this process that God is going through now, changing us from the inside out, conforming us to the image of Jesus. That will find its fulfillment when we're in the presence of the Lord. And we will be a perfected spirit, a perfected soul. We'll also see will be a perfected body. As well. But we'll be a perfected spirit, perfected soul, in a number of ways. The Bible teaches that we'll experience perfect pleasure in heaven. Now, remember, I said at the beginning, it's hard for imperfect people living in a fallen world to think about perfection. But the Bible teaches that we will experience perfect pleasure in heaven. The psalmist said this. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We'll have perfect pleasure because we'll be free from the effects of sin. Friends, all I can tell you from God's word about this pleasure that we will enjoy perfectly in our perfect new home is this. Whatever pleasures we experience in a fallen world in the here and now cannot compare to the pleasures we'll enjoy free from the effects of sin in the presence of our God. We will, the Bible teaches, be perfected souls, experiencing perfect pleasure, but also having perfect knowledge. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. doesn't mean I'll know everything, but I'll have access to have questions answered that I don't have access to right now. I get questions from you all on a regular basis. I get emails. Hey, what about this? What about that? I do my best. I answer from God's word. That's all I have. God's word, though it is true in all that it says, it doesn't tell us everything. But one day, we will have access to the Lord himself. And we will have perfect knowledge, not exhaustive omniscience as only God can have, but perfect knowledge of ourselves and of our God. We'll have perfect comfort. You all remember the parable that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man lived high in this world, and he lived in a a wealthy estate. Lazarus begged for the crumbs that fell from his table. But when they died, the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell, and he called out to Father Abraham. And he said, I'm in torment in these flames. And Abraham spoke to him and Abraham said son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things but now he Lazarus is comforted here Lazarus is now in perfect comfort as we will one day be in heaven with our Lord think about it all of the sorrows all of the discomfort that we have now gone In heaven, A perfected soul in perfect comfort will have perfect love as well. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And why is love singled out as the greatest among these three of faith and hope and love? Because it's the only one of the three that's eternal. Did you know that? We now live by faith and not by sight. Ah, but when we see him, we no longer live by faith. By what we do not see, but we behold that which we apprehend now by faith. And hope is the confident expectation of the fulfillment of the promises of God. One day they will be fulfilled when we arrive at our heavenly home. We no longer expect them. They're here. But love remains because God, the eternal God, is love. And we will have Perfect love from God and we will express perfect love to God and to others. We will be loved perfectly and perfectly loved in return. We'll be a perfected soul with perfect pleasures and perfect comfort and perfect love and finally perfect joy. We experience the joy of the Lord in this life, even in a fallen world. We're commanded rejoice in the Lord always again, I say, be joyful, rejoice. But the truth is that joy is often mixed with sorrow and discouragement and disappointment. One day, perfect joy, unmixed with any of those things. will be a perfected soul. But we'll also be a perfected body, I say in your outline. God made us both spiritual but also physical, material and immaterial. And physical death, according to the Bible, is the separation of the spirit from the body. And these will one day be reunited. So those of our loved ones who have departed, who have died, they have died, meaning their spirit has been separated from their body. Their body will one day be reunited with their soul or spirit. God made man body and spirit in Eden and both physical and material will be redeemed. Both. We saw last week that God's eternal heaven is called a new heaven and a new earth that will merge together, according to the book of Revelation. God is going to fashion a new earth on which we will dwell in physical bodies suited for that place, a perfected body. That's why the Bible says in Romans 8.23, Romans 8.23, We eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies. (laughs) Do you wait for the redemption eagerly of your body? It raises a number of questions. Folks ask, well, will I have an all-new body? Will it be completely unrelated to the one I have now? Will we look anything like we do now? Well, we can get instructions on these questions by looking to a resurrection that's already occurred. You know, this has already happened once. Jesus has risen. But Jesus not only rose, he didn't immediately, and then immediately go to heaven. He spent 40 days, you all recall. Walking the earth after he rose, it gives you an idea of what a resurrected body will be like. Well, it was his old body, but glorified. It was not a whole new body creating a completely different identity. You remember some of the events after Jesus had risen from the dead and he walked the earth for 40 days and some of the encounters that he had. In that body, a body as we will see, like we will have, Jesus could be touched by Thomas in John chapter 20. Jesus said in Luke 24 and verse 39, He told his first followers, look at my hands and my feet, it is myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus looked human in every regard. You may remember that the resurrected Jesus in his glorified body was walking along a road to Emmaus with two of his followers. And he was talking and conversing with them and not one time Did they ever question his humanity as he spoke with them? After Jesus' resurrection, in his glorified body, he ate real earthly food. In Luke 24, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And the Bible says they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And so Jesus had a real physical body as he walked the earth for 40 days. We're going to have a body like that. But he also had other worldly pro- properties as well. You read that in that 40-day experience of Jesus. He was able to pass through walls without entering a room with a door. He was able to appear suddenly out of nowhere. You may remember in Acts chapter 1 that his disciples were standing there on the Mount of Olives and Jesus descended, or excuse me, ascended to heaven bodily. So he had these other worldly properties, our bodies, will be like his, the Bible says very clearly. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. The Lord will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You want to know what your glorified body is going to be like? This has already happened. And it is a body that is very much like the one we have now, and yet with glorified properties. And 1 Corinthians 15 is all about that issue. It's all about the resurrection body. And Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, in its 58 verses, all 58 verses are devoted to this issue of the resurrection. And in it, Paul argues that the resurrection is crucial to the faith that is Christianity. And he takes to task any who would deny a literal, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. Of Jesus and from, for all of those who know Jesus. And in verses 35 and 36, he alludes to the questions that doubters ask and he rebukes them. Notice, notice verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come? In verse 36, Paul says, how foolish. And then he gives a number of illustrations to show why it's a foolish question on the part of a scoffer, a doubter, to say, how can that possibly be, is the idea. They're not just asking an innocent question of inquiry. How can that possibly be? They're saying, they're scoffing, they're saying it's foolish. Paul retorts, it's foolish for you to think that it is foolish given that Jesus is already raised. And then he gives a number of illustrations as to why it's foolish to doubt the resurrection. It's illustrated in verses 36 and 37 by a seed. The seed is not the final product. It's only a necessary precursor to what will come. Verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. To each kind of seed, he gives its own body. When a seed goes into the ground, the very first thing it does is it dies. And the process of fermentation and decomposition results in new life. But in that seed that goes into the ground and dies and begins this process, there is the full pattern of for what it will become it's all there the entire genetic code for instance of an oak tree is present in an acorn and that's the illustration that Paul is giving it's going to die it's going to be planted in the ground as it were but it will come up just as just as intended and it's illustrated by animal bodies animals physical bodies He tells us in the next couple of verses. In verses 36 and 37, he's answered the question, this is how it happens, that was asked back in verse 35 by the scoffer. How is the body? How can that possibly be? He gives an illustration from the seed. And the next question is, but what will the body be like? Last part of verse 35, what kind of body? And now he begins to tell us that, beginning in verse 39. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. So flesh is determined by the body, not by what is put in it. The DNA keeps the body what it is on this earth as God created it. And God created a multitude of different bodies, man, fish, beasts, and birds. God is not limited by what he can create. And so here's what Paul is arguing. It's not absurd to say that there will be flesh in heaven. What kind of body are you going to have in heaven? The scoffers say, how could you possibly have a physical body in heaven? It's not absurd to say. That's absurd to say that it's going to be normal flesh. That's what Paul said. God has made all kinds of different flesh. And he will now fashion a flesh, a body, suited for its new environment. He's done that throughout his creation, Paul is arguing. He will do that for our heavenly body as well. Lest anyone still doubt, he gives another illustration of celestial bodies, sun, moon, and stars, each doing the job God created. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon another star is another. And the star differs from one star in its splendor. Each of them do what God has created them to do. And the body that we will have will do exactly what God has intended it to do. And he concludes in verses 42 to 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. The characteristics in verses 42 to 44 of our resurrection body are that they are imperishable, they will be glorious, they will be raised in, in power, they will have abilities that we do not have in the weakness of this body now. They will have spiritual properties, as we see in the resurrected body of Jesus, being able to do things that a merely physical body cannot do. But most of all, most of all, they will be Christ-like bodies. Notice verse 45. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, and so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, the last Adam... A life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, second from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we who have been born the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. God is in the process of making you like Jesus right now. And he's going to culminate that process one day. Bringing your body reunited with your spirit so that we will be like the man Christ Jesus, both spiritually and physically. That's what we'll be like. Perfectly suited for our perfect environment. Now, what will we do when we're in heaven? And that's the second part of your outline. And I say there, we'll be perfectly satisfied in our perfect home. Perfectly satisfied. We will be satisfied with the perfect fellowship that we will enjoy with God. Friends, we were made for this. We were made for fellowship, communion, relationship with our God. This is the reason that I am never embarrassed, ever, ever when I'm in the presence of unbelievers to talk about God. Because we were made for this. There is a God sense within even the person who denies God. Romans chapter 1. That's why when we have a golf outing like we did and I get my 15 minutes in between, they played 36 holes. And in between the rounds of 18, we had lunch and then I had my 15 minutes. and It doesn't bother me in the least, in the least, to talk about God. Every guy there knows that there's a God and he's a creature of the Creator. He was made for this. And we were made for this. C.S. Lewis said, you know, if I find nothing in this world that satisfies, then it's probably because I was made for another. I was made for communion with God With him in his place. You were made for that. And one day we will have perfect fellowship. Satisfied with the perfect fellowship that we will have with God. And God has begun that process of reconciling that which was suffered by the entrance of sin. Between himself and between his creatures. That were made for this communion, this fellowship with him. Adam and Eve knew it in the garden. And that's why in chapter 3 they could hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day because they knew that sound. They were made for that sound. They were made to be in fellowship with their God. But sin broke that. And God is reconciling that. And one day it will be perfectly reconciled. Thanks be to God. We'll be satisfied with the fellowship we have with God. And so in the here and now God's reconciling that. And he calls us his children. His children. Adopting us into his family, whereby the Bible tells us we cry out, Abba, Father. And Jesus has told us that heaven is not just a place. It is a place, but it's not just a place. It is also a place where there is a specific person. Jesus, God is there. And the reason we want to be there is because that's where he is. Because we were made for fellowship with him and we will be completely reconciled to him. And so in Jesus' prayer in John 17, he prays to the Father, Father, I have called them out of the world. I have done as you've instructed me to do. Now glorify me through them so that they may one day be with In John 14 you remember Jesus' famous words stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so I would have told you and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. But why am I going to prepare this place for you? That where I am there you may be also. The idea is to be with Jesus and to see Jesus face to face I can indeed only imagine what it will be like to behold the Lord of glory face to face but it is this for which we were made and we will be perfectly satisfied in the fellowship that we will have with our God in heaven now that raises a question was that it then Because that's plenty, and I do look forward to that, but that still sort of sounds like the cloud and the harp and the long church service. And so I've got a couple other things the Bible teaches that we will be about and be doing in heaven. One of the questions people often ask, rightly, is you know, will I know my loved ones who have gone before me? Will I still be married? And sometimes I don't know which angle that's coming from. (laughs) So I ask no questions for conscience sake. But we will be satisfied with perfect fellowship with our God, but also perfect relationships with others. Marriage is one of the questions that's often asked with regard to heaven. One guy said, you know, my wife's an angel. She's always up in the air harping about something. He said... But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 through 31. It's a passage that not many of us have paid much attention to probably because the entirety of the passage is really about things like marriage and divorce and remarriage. But then at the end of that chapter on issues of marriage, divorce, remarriage, what's permissible and what's not, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says some interesting things about marriage. And the nature and purpose of marriage. Verse 29. The time is short. From now on those who have wives. Should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this, present, for this world in its present form is passing away. Verse 32, I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Verse 33, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How he can please his wife and his interests are divided. I encourage you to read that passage in its entirety when you are able, not now. You're not able right now. But read that in its entirety. But do you see the point that Paul is making? That... The marriage relationship that we have now is a temporary relationship, like these other relationships that he mentions in the passage. And so the question of will we be married in heaven, the answer is, is no. We will not be married as we are on earth when we're in heaven. Jesus made that very clear in Matthew chapter 22. He was asked the question, and he said, you don't know the scriptures. In Matthew 22... He said, the angels neither marry or given in marriage, and so shall it be with all those who are in heaven. Consider the purposes for which God gave us the blessed institution of marriage for those of us who are blessed to be married. But the woman is to be the helpmate of the man. The man will not need a helpmate in heaven. The man is to be the protector of the woman. The woman will need will not need the man's protection in, in heaven. And so we will, we will not be married in heaven. The Bible clearly teaches that, as we are on earth. And for those of us that enjoy blessed marriages, there's a tinge of sadness about that, but that's only because of what I said at the beginning. We in an imperfect state and an imperfect world can't fully understand what a perfect environment will be like. But that doesn't mean we won't know each other. We most certainly will know one another. 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' example, his 40 days on earth, we most certainly will be known by others, and we will know others that we have known as well. And I can imagine speaking with Kim about God's work in our lives in redeeming us and allowing us to be at the place for which he has made us. And allowing us, Lord willing, to raise children who will be there with us. We will know them as well. And we will know you. We will know each other. The Bible clearly teaches. I can imagine just talking about that, thanking God and praising our God for that. But it does give us a clue that there will be no marriage in heaven. It does give us a clue to think about the purpose for marriage on earth. You see, the perfect, the, the reason for marriage on earth is to not create heaven here. Heaven will never be here. It's to prepare for the heaven that will be there. It's to prepare ourselves. It's to prepare our spouse. It's to prepare our children. It's preparation. But it is not the permanency of the relationship. And another question that people ask is, will we be reunited with those who have gone before us? The Bible's answer to that is yes. I won't have you turn there, but in First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, you all remember... Paul goes from verse 13 to verse 18 about future things and the resurrection of the body. And he says, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died before us. That we are going to one day, he says in that passage, be gathered, and here's the phrase, be gathered together with them. Paul is there describing a reunion. Of God's people in heaven. And he ends it in verse 18. Therefore comfort one another. With these words. We will without doubt. Be reunited. With those who have died before us. In Jesus. We will be satisfied with. Perfect relationships with others. And all of the stuff that we struggle with. In our relationships now. In marriage and in parenting. And at work. And all of the human relationships that we know all of those strains will be removed because our fallenness is gone. I can only imagine. And then finally, we will be satisfied, not only with perfect fellowship with God, and perfect relationships with others, but notice this, with perfect service to God. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15 says this, they serve him day and night. Revelation 22 and verse 3 says this. Revelation 22:3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and hear this: and his servants will serve him. What am I going to be doing? What are you going to be doing? The Bible says you're going to be serving God. You were made to glorify God by serving him with the abilities that he has given you. And that will continue in eternity. If you want to think about what heaven will be like, the Bible gives us glimpses. Our bodies will be like that of Jesus. And what we're able to do will be like what Jesus did. And the first two chapters of your Bible give you a glimpse of that as well. Have you ever considered that God intended his world to be what he made in the Garden of Eden. And he suited the man and the woman perfectly for that environment, no sin. And do you remember that they were required by God to work there, to serve there? God had things for them to do, to carry out. God did not make us to simply float on a cloud with a heart. He made us to serve him and to use our God-given abilities to serve Him. And the Bible tells us, last chapter of the Bible, His servants will serve Him. And will do so throughout eternity. And part of the reason that we've lost that notion in our thinking about heaven, that we will be actively serving our God on a new heaven, in a new heaven, a new earth, with our new bodies. Part of the reason we've lost that is because so many teachers throughout 2,000 years of Christian history have taught that heaven is just like one eternal trance as we gaze at God. Anybody ever heard the phrase, the beatific vision? That's what that's like. You, you'll see God and you'll be entranced with Him and you won't do anything really but behold His, his beauty. God is glorified when we behold His beauty both in who he is and in what he has done. But hear this. God is also glorified when we look away from him and put our hands to the things that he gives us to accomplish. That was true in Eden, and it will be true in heaven as well. Humans were intended to enjoy and glorify God by looking away from him rather than always looking at him. One writer says it this way, when Adam named the animals, he was looking at lions and tigers and bears, not at God. And by looking away from God, he actually learned more about God because he was able to discern God's character when he saw it reflected in God's creation. The naming of the animals gave Adam the opportunity to perform a task to glorify God. If Adam had refused to shift his gaze from the divine presence, then he would actually have missed an occasion to worship God and serve God by looking at what God does. That has effects for us in the here and now. A believing doctor, a believing surgeon, glorifies God best not by holding a prayer meeting in the middle of the operating room, but by paying attention to what he's doing while he operates. If you've ever been operated on, you agree with that, don't you? Adam had moments when God was the object of his full attention. That will be true for us in eternity as well. Revelation certainly describes that. But everything in Eden and everything in the New Jerusalem was and will be sacred because everything material and immaterial alike was and will be devoted to the glory of God. Everything in our lives should become sacred in exactly the same sense for the true worshiper of God... Nothing is common. Nothing's common now, and they'll be perfectly united then. God does not intend for us to sit eternally in a celestial trance. To be sure, as I've said, there'll be moments of pure adoration when we add our voices to the mighty choir, the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs, and we will cast our crowns at his feet and we'll exalt the worthiness of the Lamb as we've sung about today. But there is still the new earth and the holy city the Bible teaches and the river and the tree of life and the nations. You read about all that in the book of Revelation. Well, these are things that you read about in the first two chapters of your Bible, the tree of life and the river. And come, drink freely from the river, all as God intended it to be. there will be the holy city, the river, the tree of life, our resurrection bodies. And all of these are material. And materiality must have some purpose. God resurrects our physical bodies so that they will accomplish the purpose for which he gave Adam his physical body. To serve him throughout all eternity. Life right now is preparation for eternity. In light of what the Bible tells us about what we'll be like and what we'll be doing, we should view our relationships that way. We should view our fellowship with God in the here and now that way. We should view our work, our tasks, in glorifying God in the here and now in light of what we'll be doing in eternity. We are not in conclusion. And this is is not that unending sermon. Really, I mean it, conclusion. But we are not believers in an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. Some of you know what that is. Gnosticism taught the early church and even books in your New Testament have to deal with this heresy of Gnosticism. Book of Colossians in particular. 1 John as well. It denied that matter, material, could be used for good ends because matter, material, according to the Gnostics, was evil. And that invaded the church. Paul had to address it at the church at Colossae. He had to address it at He had to address it, uh, John had to address it in his first letter. And as a result, they denied that Jesus could have ever been God come in the flesh because God could have nothing to do with flesh, material. But the Bible teaches that God likes matter because he made it. And in heaven, we will be material and immaterial, physical and spiritual, perfectly reunited to do what God intended for Adam to carry out in his original creation in Eden. And God's people look forward to that time and live in the presence in light of it, in the present in light of it. Let's bow before our God. Father, we thank you for the glimpses in Holy Scripture that you give us of what you have in store for your people in the future, in the heavenly city. And Lord, we know that what we know from your word, we know truly, but we do not know fully. That your word is not all the truth that can possibly be known. But you've given us all the truth we need to know. To function for life and godliness in the here and now. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you for these glimpses of the resurrected body. And the heavenly city. And the kinds of activities you created us to be engaged in, that we will continue throughout eternity. and Lord, in our relationships now, help us to see them in light of the future that we will have with you and with one another. And help us to see that the utilitarian things that you've given us for the utility of glorifying you in a fallen world, many of those things won't be necessary when we know the absolute perfection of our heavenly home. And in light of that, then, Help us to see those relationships as means to prepare us for that blessed time. Help us to see our children as mission fields. Help us to see our spouses as partners with us as sojourners to the heavenly city. And Lord, as we do these things in light of what you've told us in your word, we look forward as God's people to this marvelous reunion. And we can only imagine what it will be like to stand before you to, to indeed gaze upon the beauty of who you are, to look at all you've done, to look at the beauty of the heavenly city, to be participants in it, to be actively involved in serving you, to have perfect comfort and joy and love and pleasure. Lord, we can only imagine. But thank you for giving us this glimpse. Help it to be a motivation for us, to bring honor to you in life, so that we will bring honor to you in eternity as well. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.